Let us turn in God's Word this evening to Revelation chapter 10. text for the sermon will be the first six verses of this chapter. We will not reread that, so I ask that you pay special attention to verses 1 through 6. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth, and cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth, lifted up his hand to heaven, and swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth, and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he hath declared to his servants the prophets." And the voice which I heard from heaven spake unto me again, and said, Go, and take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel which standeth upon the sea and upon the earth. And I went unto the angel, and said unto him, Give me the little book. And he said unto me, Take it, and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter but it shall be in thy mouth sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it up, and it was in my mouth sweet as honey. And as soon as I had eaten it, my belly was bitter. And he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues, and kings. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. May God add his blessing upon the reading of his holy scriptures. Beloved congregation in the Lord Jesus Christ, the text that we consider this evening is part of the vision that the Apostle John received from God. The particular part of the vision that we look at tonight is considered an interlude to the main progress or flow of the book 
of Revelation. Revelation has within it the repetition of the number seven. There's the opening of the seven seals. There's the blowing of the seven trumpets. There's the seven churches that are addressed earlier in the book of Revelation. And that repetition of the blowing of the trumpets and the opening of the seals makes up the main part of the book of Revelation. But in between, the opening of the six and the seventh, or rather, in between the blowing of the six and the seventh trumpets, there is the interlude, which makes up the text that we look at tonight. Central in this vision that the Apostle John received is an angel. It's an angel who descends, a mighty angel who descends down from heaven. A beautiful angel. His face is radiant, as radiant as the noonday sun. He's a large angel. He stands with one foot upon the sea and the other foot upon the earth on the dry ground. For us to understand what the meaning of this vision is, we must know who is this angel. The angel is none other than our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is that mighty angel who descends from heaven, who is radiant, who has a rainbow upon his head, who has a little book, a scroll in his hand, and who stands, mighty prince of this earth, one foot on the sea and the other foot on dry ground. This morning we looked at Jesus sitting at God's right hand. Tonight we look at Jesus descending. The mighty descending angel. Let's note first of all His glory. Looking especially at the first verse and the description of the angel there. Second, His posture. How He stands and what that posture indicates. And then third, What word he has. Verse 6, he swears. Look at that oath that he swears. The mighty descending angel, his glory, his posture, and his word. How beautiful is this glorious angel who descends from heaven. The text describes him first of all as being clothed with a cloud. No, No ordinary raiment adorns this angel as he comes down, but he's given unique clothing, and the clothing that adorns him is a cloud. Nowhere else in Scripture are angels described as being clothed with a cloud. 
which shows that this particular angel is a unique angel. Jesus Christ, on the other hand, is frequently described in connection with clouds. Revelation 1, verse 7. Revelation 1, verse 7. Behold, he cometh with clouds. Speaking of Jesus. And every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Luke 21, verse 27 as well describes Jesus Christ in relation to a cloud. And then they shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So what then does a cloud symbolize? We see Jesus described as part of a or with the clouds. So that helps us understand that this angel is indeed Jesus. But what does this reveal about Jesus? Do not clouds throughout the Scriptures reveal the majesty, the transcendent majesty of our Lord? Even Luke 21-27, we shall see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great Glory. Clouds picture that which is heavenly. Clouds picture that which is beyond our reach as human beings who are tied to this earth. And so the fact that Jesus is described here as having been clothed with a cloud indicates that Jesus Christ is adorned with glory and with majesty. Jesus is the infinitely beautiful Son of God. Jesus is the One who has every virtue of God Himself. There's nothing lacking and nothing wanting in Jesus Christ. Psalm 36, verse 5, Thy mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens, and Thy faithfulness reacheth the clouds. How finite and how little are we as we stand in comparison to Jesus Christ clothed with a cloud. And then the text describes this angel further as a rainbow. And a rainbow was upon his head. And immediately this adds, does it not, to the description of the glory of this angel. How beautiful is the rainbow. It's something that in this particular area, we are blessed with being able to see frequently. Of all the places that I've lived, I've never seen more rainbows than in this particular region of the earth. How beautiful and how glorious is the bow that God sets in the skies. That this angel is is described as being having a rainbow upon his head, further confirms 
that this angel is Christ. Revelation 4, verses 2 and 3, we read a description of Christ there. Revelation 4, verse 2, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. There's a throne. Who's sitting on it? Jesus. Jesus sitting on this throne. And He that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Rainbow. It's a picture of that covenant of grace that God establishes with believers and with their seed. A rainbow was God's oath that He gave unto Noah following the days of the flood that God would never again destroy the earth as He had done so with the waters. The rainbow, an image that the world has taken, has hijacked from Christianity, and has corrupted, using it to represent the vile wickedness of mankind. But the rainbow endures in the Word of God as a beautiful testimony and reminder of His faithfulness unto us. The rainbow indicates God's grace to us as children given to us through the death of the suffering servant, His Son, Jesus Christ. The location of this rainbow is significant. The text says that the rainbow was upon his head, not across his waist, not slung over his shoulder, but the rainbow was upon his head. This indicates that the covenant is on the forefront of the mind of Jesus Christ. Jesus, as it were, cannot stop thinking about that covenant that He has established with His people. His thoughts are filled not with Himself or His own preservation or protection, but throughout all of His ministry, Jesus Christ labored among His people with the rainbow on His head. It was the thoughts of the covenant that brought Jesus Christ before Pontius Pilate condemned because He loved the covenant more than what He loved His own personal life. To this day, Jesus Christ as the exalted Lord and Savior continues thinking of covenant, the rainbow, is upon His head. Isaiah asks, is it possible 
for a nursing mother to forget her child? As impossible as it might seem for a nursing mother to forget her child, even more impossible is it for Jesus to forget His covenant. And then, John in this vision goes on. He sees this mighty angel clothed with a cloud, a rainbow upon his head, and his face as it were the sun. How brilliant and how powerful is the sun. We cannot look directly at the noonday sun lest our eyes be damaged by the powerful rays that go forth from the sun. Again, that His face was, as it were, the Son indicates that this is Jesus Christ. For throughout the Scriptures, Jesus is identified often with the Son. Matthew 17, verse 2, at the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount, His face did shine as the sun. Revelation 1, verse 16, His countenance was as the sun shineth in His strength. The sun, what does the sun symbolize? Does not that, that symbolize the purity, the holiness of Jesus Christ? God is light, and there is no darkness in Him at all. Jesus Christ does not entertain thoughts of wickedness, thoughts of rebellion against the will of His Father. Jesus Christ never lusted, never coveted, but always lived in perfect consecration unto His heavenly Father. From an earthly point of view, there is no brighter light than the sun. His face is not as it were the moon, which is the lesser light. His face is not as it were the stars, which twinkle off in the distance, but his face, as it were, was the sun. That's part of the wonder of heaven that we will be able to be in the presence of the Holy Son of God and not be consumed by his holiness. Recall the Old Testament priests who would go into that most holy place. We've noted how dangerous that was to go into the presence of holiness. They had to offer a sacrifice first. They had to be adorned with special clothing lest they be struck down by the holiness of God. The wonder of heaven is that we will be able to live right next to Jesus, whose face is, as it were, the sun, and we will not be destroyed. Then behold with me the posture of this mighty angel. Verse 2, he had in his hand a little book open. And he set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot 
on the earth. The sea and the earth are to be understood symbolically here. They're a reference to this creation and all that is in the creation. He stands one foot on the sea, one foot on the earth, the dry ground. The sea represents the oceans, the great oceans of this earth and all that is found within the oceans. The plant life, the animals, the little fish, the sharks, the great whales. It includes the inanimate objects of the sea, the rocks found at the bottom of the ocean, shipwrecks that have gone down to the depths, The sea includes all that is associated with water. And then on the other hand, there is the earth. The earth represents the dry land where man has his habitation and all that is to be found on this earth. The earth represents the trees, the grass, the plants that nourish life on this earth. The earth represents the cattle, the animals, that dwell upon this earth, as well as all of mankind on this earth. It represents the advancements of technology on this earth. Developments in engineering. The ability that man has to exercise dominion over aspects of this earth. All of that is pictured here in the sea and in the land. On the sea and the land, the angel stands. He set his right foot upon the sea and his left foot on the earth. What a picture here. This mighty angel with his legs. One standing on the seas, not drowning in the seas, but on the seas. The other standing on this earth. And does not not that represent unto us, beloved, the power of this angel over everything that is upon the face of this earth? That's the idea here of this symbol, that he stands there, indicates that he is sovereign over the sea and over the land. We speak that way ourselves. Even if a man climbs a mountain, if he summits that mountain and stands on it, we say that that man has conquered that mountain. Well, so it is then for this mighty angel as he stands on the sea and on the earth. The idea is that he has conquered sea and earth. He has dominion over it. And it's not just we who speak this way about the idea of standing on something. But the Scriptures as well confirm that that's the idea of standing on something or someone else. Think of the familiar psalm. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. of Joshua. Joshua went into battle against the enemy kings who lived in the land of Israel. He conquered those enemy kings and then he summoned the men of Israel to come 
and they were to take their foot and place their foot upon the necks of those enemy kings whom they had conquered. Placing one's foot on something or someone else indicates power over that thing or person. Jesus Christ, this angel, has absolute, unquestionable, sovereign power over everything that happens in the sea as well as on the earth. To be sure, His power is a disputed power From an earthly perspective, it would seem as if Jesus Christ is not the mighty angel who does not have all power on this earth. And as the history of earth advances and we get closer and closer to the end of time, it will seem more and more as if Jesus Christ is not in control. It will seem as if the prince of this world The devil is the one who exercises control over this earth. There will continue to be the development of wickedness. There's going to be apostasy falling away from the truth. There's going to be the love of many that waxes cold. Those who fall away from the church. And yet Jesus is in control of this. And sometimes the church struggles to formulate a response to the apparent development of wickedness upon this earth. Some would say it is our duty to stop the advance of wickedness and evil across this earth. A great burden is put upon Christians, then if that's their duty, it's your job to stop wickedness from spreading. What terrible guilt you would feel if that was our duty to stop the cause of wickedness. How do we respond to the development of sin and evil on this earth? Just remember here that Jesus stands. He stands with one foot on the sea. He stands with the other foot on the earth. And He directs everything according to what is written in the little book. And that little book that's in His hand indicates the will of of our Father which is in heaven. And God has made clear, Matthew 24, and other passages of Scripture as well, that we do not expect that things upon this earth will improve, that conditions will generally get better and better until finally there is Christianity spread over the face of this earth. But His Word makes clear that things are going exactly according to plan. 
the growth of evil, the spread of evil over this earth is no accident. Apostasy, divisions, hurt, the coming persecution of the church happens according to the control of this mighty angel who stands one foot on the sea and the other on the earth. The text emphasizes a unique aspect of the kingly power of this angel. Not just that he sovereignly rules over all things, but also this, that he's the judging king. The text calls attention to the angel's work of judging. Several different things here in the text that call attention to judging. First of all, at the end of the very first verse, there's this description that his feet are as pillars of fire. Throughout the Scriptures, fire indicates the judgment and the justice of God. So it indicates here that this angel is a judging angel. And then in verse 3, we see further proof that he comes as judge. He, this mighty angel, cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. The roar of the lion, which is heard throughout this earth, is a picture of judgment. Amos 3, verse 4, Will a lion roar in the forest when it hath no prey? And then the second half of verse 3 as well, And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered, their voices. Thunder. Thunder as well pictures the justice and the judgment of God. Think even of Mount Sinai when the Israelites were in the wilderness and God descended down upon Mount Sinai and there was smoke and fire that came out of that mountain and thunderings that accompanied the holy presence of God as He descended on that mountain. Jesus Christ stands as King over this earth, but let this be understood as well, He stands as the just and the judging King over this earth. He not only is sovereign over everything that happens here below, but He also is going to demand an answer of every rational, moral, human being Upon this earth, he stands with his feet as pillars of fire ready to consume and destroy the enemies who rage against God's people. A few things that we can note about the judgment of Jesus Christ. First, notice that it includes all rational, moral people. He stands both on the sea and on the earth. There is no place where man can hide from Jesus Christ. His voice goes forth as the roar of a lion. And who can escape that roar of the lion's voice? And if one says, well, the roar of the lion is limited to this earth, but maybe I can go to the heavens... Then there goes the seven thunders which are heard in the heavens. 
no one can escape the judgment of Jesus Christ. Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Amos the prophet warned Old Testament Israelites in Amos 4, verse 12. What else do we note about this judgment? We note what the standard of the judgment is. The judgment will be done according to holiness. Recall, His face was, as it were, the sun, which indicates purity, the holiness of God. This ought not scare, but comfort us as the people of God. We know in advance what the standard will be in the judgment day. The holiness of God. Sometimes students in college or university have it that they sit a test and they do the best they can to prepare for this test. It's an important examination coming up. They study material that they think is pertinent for that examination. They sit the exam and they find that there's something on that exam that is not what they had anticipated. Something different than what they thought was going to be the standard by which they would be judged. And then the students tempted to cry out, well, that's not fair. You didn't... didn't, Help us understand that this was going to be the material that we were going to be judged over, examined about. It will not be the case, beloved, in the judgment day that we are caught by surprise as that university student about what the standard is of the judgment. His face was, as it were, the Son. He is the Holy Son of God, and we will be judged likewise. Then notice with me as well about this judgment, the purpose of it. The purpose is for the glory of God. That comes out from the phrase in the first verse, clothed with a cloud. Recall, clouds picture the transcendence, the majesty, and the glory of God. The purpose of that judgment will be so that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The purpose will be the vindication of God. While on this earth, man can sinfully suppress that knowledge of God. Press down the fact that God is the Almighty One who created, who sustains, and who judges. But in that judgment day, no one will be able to say anymore, there is no God. The purpose of that final judgment will be so that the Son of God who is adorned with a cloud will be revealed as the glorious and the majestic Son of Jehovah. And then what can we note about this judgment? 
This judgment will be for your good and for my good. It will be for our salvation. Why? Because recall, the one who executes judgment has a rainbow upon his head. He cannot stop thinking about the covenant and about his covenant people and about the work that he performed for them at Calvary. Yes, his feet are as great pillars of fire. Yes, when he speaks, it's as a lion that roars and as seven thunders that utter their voices. But we do not need to live in fear of the final judgment of Jesus Christ. But our confidence is that on the basis of His finished work at Calvary, He will say unto us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. We see further comfort in the Word. That he swears. Verse 5 And the angel which I saw stand upon the sea and upon the earth lifted up his hand to heaven and sware by him that liveth forever and ever that there should be time no longer. That's the oath that he swore. That time should be no longer. The idea is not, cannot be the case. And at the moment that John had this vision given unto him that, that marked the end of New Testament history, it's not the case that as soon as John saw this, that there'd be no more development of time on this earth. No. But the idea is this. When he says that time should be no longer, he means that time will go on for no longer than what God has ordained that it should go on. There's a boundary, a limit that is placed on time itself. Time will not continue indefinitely upon this earth in the way that we conceive of time, but there comes a moment in which time will be no longer. How we as New Testament saints need to be reminded of this truth, that God has set a limit on time. For we with the martyred souls cry out. Revelation 6, verse 10. How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost Thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The more that God is pleased to have us dwell here below, the more that we see the vanity of this earth, its vanity of vanities, the more we face hurt, disappointment, rejection, the more we cry out, How long? How many are the days? of thy servant. O when wilt thou come 
and execute judgment on them that persecute Me. The assurance that God gives us in His Word is that time will be no longer. It will not go for one millisecond beyond what God has ordained. He swears. He swears by the greatest name that He could possibly swear by. He swear by Him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein. He swore by the name of God because there is no greater name than Jehovah God by whom He could swear. He swore by God's name because God is trustworthy. He's dependable. His yea is yea and His nay is nay. He swears by the name of God who created this earth, who sent His Son Jesus Christ into this world to become flesh of our flesh and bone of our bone, by the name of the God who beholds the lowest state of His handmaiden and who pities them in their afflictions. By that name, the angel swears. May this give unto us assurance, beloved, as we look ahead to the future, knowing that Jesus comes and He comes quickly. Apart from faith, as we looked out upon this earth, all we would see is the earth and the sea and all of the wickedness that is found in the earth and the sea. But by faith, we're given to see more than just the earth and the sea Though we behold an angel standing on the earth and the sea, sovereign. May the thoughts of His almighty stance on this earth, governing and upholding, be used by God to comfort us in the weeks and months ahead. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank Thee for the promises which are made to us in Thy Word. We thank Thee that Thy promises are faithful. How often are we not disappointed by the false assurances of man. But in distinction, Thy Word is dependable. Thou dost give us Thy Spirit who spreads forth Thy love abroad in our hearts and who gives us to know that we belong unto Jesus Christ. Send us home with Thy blessing and pardon our sins for the sake of the Lamb. Amen.